0: And thanks for listening.
1: Hey, climate-conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to The C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts,
3: and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future a future that may take an unexpected turn in our response to climate change.
1: I believe strongly in clean water and clean air,
4: but I think it's a big scam for a lot of people to make a lot of money.
3: What will a President Trump mean for U.S. environmental policy?
4: I think the train has left the station in terms of uh, U.S. utilities uh, cutting their greenhouse gas emissions and using more renewable energy. The bigger question is what's going to happen after that?
3: How will Deep Blue California and its progressive climate agenda get along with the new administration? We have the ability to push back to protect everything that we've done to
5: work against climate change, to bolster what California can do, and hopefully
3: to be a shining example for the rest of our nation. Political and climate disruption, up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One Conversations with Oil Companies and Environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. 2016 began fresh from the triumph of the Paris Climate Accord. But a year later, it was the surprise triumph of Donald Trump that dominated the news. It was a roller coaster of a year. And it was also hot. Scientists say 2016 will see the highest average global temperatures ever recorded as long as humans have been walking the earth. So what will 2017 and the new administration in Washington bring as far as our commitments to fighting climate change? On today's show, we look ahead at how environmentally conscious lawmakers and businesses might move forward now that Republicans control the White House and both chambers of Congress. Joining Greg today are three veteran journalists covering the energy and clean tech beats. David Baker is energy reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Katie Fehrenbacher is a former senior writer at Fortune and wears the coolest sneakers ever on the Climate One stage. And Cassandra Sweet is an energy reporter with the Wall Street Journal. Here's Greg talking about the year in political and climate disruption.
1: Cassandra Sweet, The Paris Climate Accord brought together almost 200 countries uh, getting on the same page. Is it a big deal? Does that matter to businesses that you cover in the Wall Street Journal?
4: It is a big deal because there's a lot of global pressure on the United States to um, do something about its emissions. You know, we we are one of the top um, energy users in the world, and we also emit among the most greenhouse gases and we're a rich country, so we can afford to use new technology to cut our emissions. So there's a lot of global pressure from China, India, you know, Europe, other countries. And there's an expectation among ordinary Americans that our government should do something about climate change and that other governments should be doing something. And now I think we're also hearing from investors uh, that kind of nameless faceless group of people who invest in all the big companies that are publicly traded that we hear about Uh, Though a lot more investors are becoming concerned about climate change And they're putting pressure on companies that they're invested in to do something to you know Have cleaner operations to um, cut their emissions, you know through energy efficiency and other things like that
1: David Baker you cover Chevron Uh, does Paris mean uh, anything for Chevron or other energy companies that you cover? Or is it some big abstract U.N. thing far away that it's not really going to directly affect their business?
6: Well, at this point, there's actually quite a split in the oil world between the U.S. oil companies and the European ones. And the European companies have banded together and the European oil companies have banded together and said jointly, we need a global price on carbon. We don't care if that comes through cap and trade or a tax, but we need a global price so we can make the decisions over the time frame that we care about, which for oil companies tends to be somewhere in the 30, 40, 50 year ballpark. They've been very forthcoming, very forward about that. Chevron and Exxon and the American companies don't want to go there. Um, They're trying to sort of lay low in terms of public statements about it at this point, although Exxon has not been able to do that as effectively, I'd say, as Chevron. You know, I went to Chevron's annual shareholder meeting in San Ramon this this year, and one of their shareholders got up and said, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. That's all I want you to do. And the CEO said, thanks, that's what we plan on. And that's sort of their approach.
1: And the system, that's what they're paid to do is make the most money for their shareholders, including a lot of people. If you own an S&P 500 index fund, as a lot of people do the oil companies are a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, and so we're part of that. Kitty Fehrenbacher, Silicon Valley likes to think that it's far away from policy, Washington, DC. The UN's probably even another further away. Do the Paris Climate Agreement mean anything in Silicon Valley?
7: Probably not as much um, compared for the startups compared to some of the bigger energy companies. Um, I mean, Silicon Valley is in kind of a new era where they have to pay more attention to policy. You know, there's companies like Uber or Airbnb who are coming up against uh, regulators in in different markets. And um, so I think there is kind of this new trend of startups having to pay attention to greater policy and regulatory issues. But I think in terms of Paris, I don't think there was a great... Deal of attention paid to Paris in the tech startup community so much. Certainly
1: not startup, though. Uh, Facebook had a big presence there. Uh, at the, in the Le Bourget, I was there in Paris, and Facebook had a very visible presence, uh, but certainly the smaller companies, maybe not so much.
7: Yeah. Well, some of the big internet companies have made a, a big push to kind of embrace that for a variety of reasons. I yeah.
1: want to talk about uh, the election. Donald Trump uh, was asked by Bill O'Reilly of uh, Fox News about his belief in global warming. Let's hear what he said. I think that there will be little change here, it'll go up, it'll get a little cooler, it'll get a little warmer, like it always has for millions of years, it'll get cooler, it'll get warmer, it's called weather, I do believe in clean, and I've, I've received, a lot of people don't know this, I've received many environmental awards, many, many environmental awards for the work I do, and I believe strongly in clean water and clean air, but I don't believe that what they say, I think it's a big scam for a lot of people to make a lot of money. Donald Trump on Fox News, Uh, David Baker, what do we know about his his policies and how he can clearly favors fossil fuels? How's that going to play out?
6: Yeah, we we still don't know exactly don't know exactly. I mean, he doesn't always do and say the same things on a particular topic. But I mean, he had a sit down meeting with Al Gore to talk about climate change. He told the New York Times editorial board he was keeping an open mind on Paris. But if you look at his transition team and if you look at some of the names he's floated or settled on for picks for his his cabinet, you have a a stunning number of climate skeptics, contrarians, deniers, whatever term you want to use. The attorney general from Oklahoma would be in charge of the EPA. This is the man who has led the states that oppose the Clean Power Plan in suing the EPA. So um, that doesn't really give me a great feeling about how effective Mr. Gore was in
4: their conversation
6: the other day.
1: (laughs) Uh, Cassandra Sweet, can Donald Trump cancel Paris?
4: I think the train has left the station in terms of uh, U.S. utilities uh, cutting their greenhouse gas emissions and using more renewable energy to bring about the emission cuts uh, that are called for under the Clean Power Plan, which is the Obama administration's uh, centerpiece climate policy. And that's a 32% reduction by 2030. And the fact is, most utilities, they plan very far ahead. They plan 10 or 20 years into the future, and they've already made their plans. They've shut down old coal plants. You know, Other coal plants that don't make money are going to get shut down electricity demand in the United States is flat or or falling in many parts of the country. And we still have a natural gas boom. Natural gas is very cheap wind power is very cheap. And so the markets are expected to help the United States uh, reach its climate pledge under the Paris Agreement. I think the bigger question is, what's going to happen after that i think there was an expectation that if hillary clinton were elected that she was going to you know introduce new mandates past 2030 and tighten restrictions on pollution and so i I think people are not expecting that to happen
1: katie fernbacher you cover silicon valley electric cars the the mantra in silicon valley is don't invest in any company that's dependent on policy because you'll Mm -hmm. get burned because you can never trust what the government's going to do are they going to keep moving forward or do you think they might change based on this political
7: Um, I think electric cars are definitely coming Um, I mean you can just look at Tesla it's kind of quintessential Silicon Valley electric car company you know pretty successful so far you know they had their first profitable quarter in three years this year I think everybody's looking at that company as kind of a leader and then all the big car companies are are following suit as well Um, so I think electric cars are definitely happening Um, but not necessarily having to do with the, the Paris agreement
1: Cassandra Street. What do electric? Uh, obviously a lot of these cars need juice to power them uh, uh, There was a time when electric utilities looked at electric cars as like a pain now oh, They're gonna hurt our grid. Well, we don't know what to do with them. Is that still the case?
4: Utilities love electric cars. They love electric cars. They're big cheerleaders for electric cars and um they're seeing them for, you know, more than just an opportunity to sell more electricity, which they don't mind. So, you know, uh, here in California, we have a fifty percent renewable energy mandate by two thousand thirty. That's a lot of renewable energy to put on the grid, and even now, when I think we're, we're at twenty six percent, there's a lot of solar power that's generated during the day that we can't use in California because we just don't have a place to put it and we don't need it. So utilities are thinking about uh, electric cars to kind of give them more uh, an opportunity to develop more infrastructure in the grid, and they always make money off of that. But also the batteries in electric cars, if there are a lot of them, the utilities are looking at them as a storage device where they could just push out excess solar power to whatever cars are... Uh, you know, plugged in at the time, and then if that was your car, you'd get free electricity for it. Right now, the utilities are giving away excess solar power to Arizona, or in some cases paying someone to take it, (laughs) because it's just too much, and we're going to have more of it. So I think electrification of transportation is definitely going to happen in California and other states, uh, probably Hawaii, you know, other states that have a lot of solar and have these very aggressive renewable energy mandates
1: david baker another auto story was as soon as donald trump was elected president the alliance of auto manufacturers said all those cafe standards have been rising recently we want to take you know back off on those and those depending on who you talk to were the number one or number two most important things this country has ever done on climate Reducing fuel demand by a couple million barrels. And now, as soon as there's a political change, Detroit's saying, ah, not so fast. What is the impact of that?
6: That's a big question mark. But they were going to be asking for that even if Clinton won the election. Um, they've already been escalating the, the mileage standards over the last few years, and all of these, by the way, in case you didn't know, come from California. They were originally codified by State Senator Fran Pavley, who just is leaving office uh, this month. Um, but the way they set it up, the way the federal government set it up, is the standards would ratchet up slowly for a few years. And then once he got past 2020, they would escalate pretty sharply. And the car companies looking at 2020, which is not far away, were saying, OK, we don't have enough electric vehicle sales yet. To make this work out, can we get some kind of wiggle room as to when the highest of these, these standards hit? The thing, though, is they can't actually back out of it at this point, in part because they've already been planning their products around this for years to come, but also because these standards, even if Trump just waved a magic wand and eliminated them at the federal level altogether, they would still apply in California. Because we have special permission from the government to apply our own standards here in the state if they fight air pollution. We've had that for years. Plus, Canada adopted the exact same standards. So the it's automakers—
4: Several other states did as well, including New York. Several other states did, yeah. I think Massachusetts. Uh, it's at least a dozen. Right.
6: So they don't—the automakers may want some breathing room. But they can't actually even ask for, really, to abolish these standards, because then they'd be in the situation of making very different cars for markets that are right next door to each other, and they hate that idea. So even if the feds give them that wiggle room, they'll still probably need to come to California and say, okay, will you do the same for us? We're
3: looking ahead at the big climate stories of 2017 at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about political and climate disruption with David Baker, energy reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, Katie Fehrenbacher, former senior writer at Fortune Magazine, and Cassandra Sweet, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Here's our host, Greg Dalton.
1: One of the big stories of 2016 was the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, protesting the rerouting of a pipeline across the uh, Missouri River, across some indigenous lands. After months of organized protest, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers recently decided to look at a rerouting of that pipeline. Uh, Here is a CNN report on the reaction to that decision. Drumbeats, cheers, and tears, the sound of victory for the Standing Rock Sioux and thousands of others gathered to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. This mass of humanity, living off the grid, joined by thousands of military veterans helped exert so much political and legal pressure,
3: effectively forcing the pipeline to be rerouted.
0: People have uh, said that this is uh, either we make it or break it, and uh, I guess uh, we made it.
1: CNN report on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, That decision, of course, could be changed in a Trump administration. David Baker, environmentalists cheer when the Keystone XL is killed or delayed, Uh, cheered here where something is rerouted, and yet, we all live in a fossil fuel world where we rely on that product environmentalists don't like the tankers that bring it in the bay area they don't like the pipelines they don't like the rail cars that might bring it uh that oil won't come to the bay area but some other oil may come down from canada Uh, you look at the energy system broadly does stopping one pipeline really change the system
6: it's easy to say no that it doesn't and yet the fact that Canada's oil sands in northern Alberta um, are sort of bottled up and haven't been able to really expand production much in the last few years indicates that altogether, yeah, that effort can actually at least delay things. Um, you know, the, the, the oils, many of these pipelines are tied to the oil sands, and they're all about Canada trying to move this resource that it has that is landlocked to the coasts somehow to get it to the global markets where they can not have to sell just to the US. They can have more buyers, sell it to China and whatnot, get a better price, expand more of the production. And it's the Canadian government, even under Justin Trudeau, has a hard time giving up this notion that this is going to be a major economic driver because they don't have many other major economic drivers on the horizon. And yet, you know, if you look at this battle that the environmentalists have waged, pipeline by pipeline, they really actually have had an effect. It's not just the fact that oil prices are low right now that has kept the, the, the oil sands or the tar sands bottled up. It is this pipeline by pipeline fight and stymieing things every step of the way. And you can call it obstructionist, but it actually does appear to be working. Cassandra Street,
1: there's an irony, though, here that some of that oil coming out of North Dakota is actually light, sweet, crude that actually burns cleaner. So if you're going to burn oil in a a Bay Area refinery, don't you want the cleaner stuff rather than the dirty stuff?
4: Uh, Yeah, it is. But there's still that dilemma. I mean, people don't want pipelines running through their town you know, or through their reservation or their, you know, sacred area or under their drinking water. I mean, we've seen this also with natural gas pipelines that are proposed in New England. You know, in New England, a lot of people want to switch from fuel oil to heat their homes to natural gas, but they can't because there's not enough supply, even though they're really close to, uh, you know, the oil boom in Pennsylvania there're not enough pipelines to get the fuel to them and it's you know cleaner burning and all this other thing but pipelines in general people don't like them even though they're safer than oil trains <laughs> and then also i think what's really been driving a lot of the uh, you know environmental movement opposing these pipelines is the idea that we should keep it in the ground and a lot of people believe that you have to take a stand you know even if uh, you know, North Dakota. You know, Bakken light crude is is better and cleaner than some of the dirtier crudes. Um, we should still keep it in the ground. So I, th- I think that's that's having an impact.
1: We're going to go to our lightning round. we to ask a series of true or false questions to each of our guests, uh, starting with David Baker. True or false? Closing the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant will cause California to get even more of its power from wind, solar, and other renewable sources eventually Cassandra Sweet true or false humanity is doomed because of climate change. No. Uh, <laughs> Katie <Fehrenbacher>, false. uh <laughs> false. You are more concerned about runaway climate change than you were three months ago. True. David Baker oil true or false oil companies trying to block California's move to cleaner fuels are emboldened by having a fossil fuel champion in the White House. Still to be seen. David Baker, if they true or false, if there is a climate change conference anywhere in the world, Jerry Brown will fly to it, <laughs> shake hands and get people to sign a pledge committing cities and states to reduce their carbon emissions.
6: Absolutely true. <laughs> uh,
1: Cassandra Sweet, true or false? Many Wall Street Journal reporters recognize burning fossil fuels is disrupting the climate, but they don't dare say it around the water cooler or in write
4: it in print. I think that used to be true, but uh, I since, think
1: it's since the Murdoch boys came in. There's a little more freedom there. We talk okay.
4: about it around the water cooler. It's it's hard to get a lot of stuff in print. So,
1: OK, Katie Fehrenbacher, true or false, self-driving cars will put many professional drivers out of work, adding more fuel to the working class anger that propelled Donald Trump to the White House.
7: True, but maybe in like 25 years.
6: OK.
1: David Baker, uh, true or false, you bring up climate change and clean energy at holiday gatherings with your extended family. True. Um, uh, follow up. And it gets dicey. <laughs> and they enjoy talking about such a
6: cheery topic with you. Uh, some yes, many false, some true, some many false. All right. That ends our lightning round. How'd they do? I think they
1: did pretty well. Let's give them thanks for. <laughs> mm. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
0: Hi, uh, my name is uh, Andreas, and uh, my question is, uh, it seems that during this election, you know, one of the big drivers, particularly from the Rust Belt, was around jobs. And as we've been talking about here, clean energy uh, is driving job growth at one of the highest rates in across sectors. Um, you know, Tesla is building manufacturing gigafactories and, in Reno and Buffalo, and Um, So I guess one question is, why didn't we hear more about the clean energy job story um, in the media during this election cycle? And do you think that um, the clean energy job growth story can help to change the conversation around climate change?
7: I think we didn't hear a lot about it, just... (laughs) I mean, in in certain circles, we did. But then in kind of uh, the kind of polar opposites, we didn't hear that story at all. I mean, I think it's um, the fact that Donald Trump talks a lot about infrastructure and investing in infrastructure and the fact that, you know, he's not including energy infrastructure in that is a, you know, a real shame. I think that also the solar and the wind industry, they do have, you know, lobbying arms, but they aren't as big and well funded as the fossil fuel industry. So um, I think those need to grow and tell those important stories more.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome to climate one.
0: I, I've worked for EPA for over 30 years and, and uh, now we got a new boss and we've had both sides of the fence over the years, but energy's changed quite a bit. So now with natural gas really is what's, what it's going to be. And the coal industry, not so feasible economically. What do you guys think is going to happen with all these promises to the coal industry, regardless of the, our pick? Where is this going to go? Because natural gas really is readily available.
1: Who'd like to yeah, Cassandra? Sweet, so you, you've uh, written about Duke Energy used to be a big coal company, now that's more right. gas.
4: Duke Energy is switching to gas. They've invested in, uh, you know, gas companies. They're building gas pipelines. Um, they, they still have coal, but they're not planning to build any new coal plants coal is just going to continue to decline. It's going to continue to decline, especially in Appalachia and uh, probably Illinois as well. Um, I think the Powder River Basin will continue to supply you know, many of the coal plants that are continuing to operate. But, um, yeah, I don't think there's much that Donald Trump can do to bring that industry back.
3: You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking with David Baker, energy reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, Katie Fehrenbacher, former senior writer at Fortune magazine, and Cassandra Sweet, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. What happened in 2016 to disrupt your climate or political thinking? Tell us about it. Our email is climateone at commonwealthclub.org. Or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at climateone. We turn now to a conversation about climate policy in the biggest and bluest state in the nation. Republicans no longer hold any statewide offices in California. And Hillary Clinton even carried Orange County, long a hotbed of conservatism. But California is on a collision course with the Trump administration on immigration, trade, the Supreme Court, social issues, and fossil fuels. In this part of the show, we explore how California might get along with President Trump, and how the state might continue to lead the fight against climate change in spite of what happens in Washington. Can Republicans and Democrats find common cause on anything in the wake of an historically nasty election campaign? Joining Greg are a pair of Republicans and a pair of Democrats. Christine Pelosi is a member of the Democratic National Committee and a superdelegate. Her mother, Nancy Pelosi, has led the House Democratic Caucus for 14 years. Tony Strickland is a Republican who served 10 years in the California state legislature and is the California chair of a pro-Trump super PAC, the Committee for American Sovereignty. Tony Thurmond is a Democratic member of the California State Assembly from Richmond, a city along the San Francisco Bay. And Duff Sundheim is a former chair of the California Republican Party and a former member of the executive committee of the Republican National Committee. Here's our conversation about the future of California in the land of Trump.
1: Duff Sundheim, I want to start around uh, 2003 uh, when an entertainer who had not ever held political office was elected governor of California. He came in, said he was going to blow up boxes. Um, A lot of people were shaking their heads. And in the ironic twist, of course, here is that he is the new celebrity apprentice. He's taken Donald Trump's old job. So what parallels do you see between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Donald Trump?
0: I think the main thing is that they are not ideological and they are not based on personalities in terms of who's around them. So their focus is going to be on getting things done. For Schwarzenegger, the comparison was the movie. Okay, there is a finished product that we get out there and that we sell. For Trump, it's the realization that there is a product that is built, real estate, a building is built. So I think what you'll see throughout this process is it's about results. And he is putting on his team people that know how to get things done.
1: And that big ego and big personality in the case of Schwarzenegger, he had some difficult relations with his own Republican Party. Some people thought he was a party of one. And some people think Donald Trump is a party of one.
0: That's right. I, I think that people that see him as an ideologue is, is wrong, but they are going to be susceptible to pressures that other politicians would not. I remember one time where Schwarzenegger came up with a big proposal and his daughter opposed it, <laughs> and it got switched that weekend. So, you know, there there are unusual um, Factors that come into play as to how decisions are made.
1: People trying to read those Trump kids. Right. Where are they and what, how could they get to daddy? Uh, Tony Strickland uh, is California on a collision course with uh, the Trump administration.
8: No, I, in fact, quite the opposite. I, I think uh, you have leaders in the Republican House. Kevin McCarthy being the number two, the majority leader. Uh, Jeff Denham uh, is in line to be the transportation infrastructure chair which donald trump has now said that there's ways on common ground on some issues and some issues there's disagreements that's what happens in the legislative body but i think donald trump's uh, investment in infrastructure i think is going to be very important that hopefully on those issues that republicans and democrats from california can come together on some of those issues so um i think that uh it, it is key that what we can do is work together hopefully as a delegation uh not different than texas i mean texas sticks together a little bit more uh, than we do here in california <laughs> in terms of fighting for your state and i think we we should do that a little bit more here in the state of california
1: christine pelosi big fight recently in the democratic caucus uh your mom run again but one-third of democrats said that they wanted someone else
2: is there time for fresh new leadership in the democratic I think there is fresh new leadership in the Democratic Party, and you see that in the number of people that were appointed or nominated. Uh, Yes, my mother, Nancy Pelosi, won overwhelmingly, which was terrific. As she said, day one, she would win by two-thirds. She won by 68%. She knows how to count and (laughs) and uh, I I never bet against her ability to count. Uh, And as one of five children, I know she can see through a head fake. So uh, (laughs) so so I tell you from personal experience, she knows how to do that and build uh, coalitions, some of which are will necessarily be transpartisan. And a lot of them come from younger members. Eric Swalwell from uh, closer to your neighborhood. uh, Tony T uh, is uh, is a Young member uh, in his 30s came to Congress with a hundred thousand dollars in debt. She put him in charge of the future form. So we could talk about that debt, student loan debt, get out of the culture of shame and into the culture of talking about why it is that we have so much crippling student debt and what that means to people's personal economies and deferred dreams. Uh, So you will see fresh new leadership and a chorus of voices going out and reaching out to the American people. So,
1: Tony Thurman, you're in uh, this late state legislature in California. California has a Democratic governor, two thirds control in both chambers, uh, a supermajority. That means they can kind of do what they want. What's what are California Democrats going to do with that cherished uh, power in Sacramento?
5: Well, let's just say I'm glad I'm in California, right, as we all are. Mm -hmm. Um, On election night, it was just devastating for everyone. And uh, when they said that the the website for people who wanted to move to Canada crashed, I was thinking that was probably just the people in California saying that we we have the ability to push back. If Trump decides to cut funding for Medi-Cal, we have the ability to shore that up through the budget. And having a two thirds majority gives us the ability to do that. California has led the way in LGBT rights, protecting women's rights immigration issues, education, and because of what's happened, we're going to have to continue to lead in all of those areas in California. And having the two thirds majority will give us the votes that we need to protect everything that we've done to work against climate change, what we've done with SB 350 to make sure that we move away from oil and use more renewables. We're going to need that two thirds majority to bolster what California can do and hopefully to be a shining example for the rest of our nation.
1: A while back, I interviewed former Secretary of State George Schultz, who served as Secretary of Treasury under President Nixon, and also uh, uh, Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan. Here is Secretary Schultz.
8: So I had in creating the EPA, and I've watched it over the years, and it seems to me it has proven itself as a very useful nag to keep after us, and we have better, cleaner air, cleaner water, you would much rather breathe the air in any American city than breathe it in Beijing. Thank you, EPA.
1: So that's George Shultz, former Secretary of Treasury under President Nixon and cabinet member President Reagan. Duff Suntime, thank you, EPA, but EPA's in the crosshairs of this new administration.
0: Well, we don't know how that's going to play out, but uh, Secretary Schultz is one of my mentors, and one of the things in he did the Montreal Protocol, which was critical for fluorocarbons. He's done a lot in terms of providing for a cleaner water and cleaner air, but he has been very critical of the degree of regulation versus innovation. So the question is, what can be done by private industry in terms of developing new technologies to address these issues? And what is the role of regulation? Clearly, he and I both favor regulation, but. The question is the balance between providing for the innovation versus the regulation, which prohibits the activity.
1: Tony Strickland, uh, there are more Americans now who work in the solar industry than extracting fossil fuels. So as a Republican, do you see promise in green tech or is it just
8: Absolutely. I I voted for the uh, renewable energy standard when I was a legislator in Sacramento. I do believe that we are transitioning into a more green uh, technology. Uh, I believe that private enterprises invested a lot of money, along with public, uh, into newer technologies. Um, but I also think that government and sometimes uh, creates regulations where the technology doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, things that CARB, the California Air Resources Board, tried to pass for these crane operators that were in my district in Santa Barbara, Uh, They went to the hearing, they say, look, what you're asking for us to do as a government uh, saying that we have to meet these regulations, that technology doesn't exist. And the answer was, well, if we have these regulations then someone will make it, what does that do to the person who's trying to create those jobs? Those cranes that cost seven to eight million dollars for those operators had to do a garage sale and, and send them over to Nevada. I believe there's a responsible way of doing it. And I also believe that we can work public and private together. I do believe in the renewable energy standard. I do believe that we can transition California into more of a renewable energy uh, technology, and that can be the model for the rest of the country. But to say that we're gonna just flip it around in, in such a short time isn't sensible. It just won't happen. We are making strides. There's no question we're making strides, and we can be the model for the rest of the country.
3: You're listening to a Climate One Conversation about the future of clean energy and climate policy in California. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Greg Dalton's back with his guests. Christine Pelosi, political strategist and Democratic Party superdelegate. Duff Sundheim, former chair of the California Republican Party. Tony Strickland, California chair of a pro-Trump super PAC and Tony Thurmond, Democratic member of the California State Assembly from Richmond. Here's Greg. A while back, I interviewed
1: uh, Marvin Odom. He's the president of Shell Oil Company, one of the largest oil companies in the world. And here's what he had to say about climate change.
6: It's very clear for us as a company, and that is that climate change is real, um, that humans have an enormous impact on that, and that it requires some sort of action going forward. So we see it as as a big enough issue and a big enough risk to where we need that sort of global framework to then drive this market to somewhere different than it's headed right now.
1: So that's Marvin Odom, president of Shell Oil Company. I want to roll another clip. Uh, This is former CEO of Goldman Sachs, Hank Paulson, Secretary of the Treasury under George W. Bush. Climate change poses a massive threat to the world. It's a huge economic risk, and like any other
0: major economic risk and i think this is the biggest economic
1: risk the planet faces climate change deserves to be understood and managed as the risk that it is duff sundheim that's the former ceo of goldman sachs head of an oil company saying things that very few republicans will say in america right now why is the republican party out of step with pillars of its support wall street and energy companies
0: Well, it's I can't speak for other Republicans. I mean, I agree with him. I agree with Steve Schmidt. I agree with Secretary Schultz. It's a major problem and we need to move forward. And you have two Republicans on the stage that agree with that statement. So we are within our party, just as Tony mentioned, there are differences within the Democratic Party. We're fighting very hard to have those issues addressed. I think the major difference that we have with the two people on this stage is what is the balance? So I was in meetings with Governor Schwarzenegger where the leading energy producers would come in and they'd say, a governor, we're glad to do this or glad to do this. But we're told if we do do this, we're going to be sued. And we're told at the same time by this other agency, if we don't do this, we're going to be sued. So just tell us what we need to do. And that's the type of regulation that we're talking about is just common sense regulation that addresses this issue because that's the balance we're trying to strike and tony and i have been working hard to find that balance because we do need cleaner air we do need cleaner water but at the same time we also have to understand that there are more people living in poverty than there are people in 39 of the 50 states so we just want to make sure as we make this transition we take into account all those people that are being left out of the american dream
1: Tony Thurmond, is California's green push hurting poor people, working class people?
5: Absolutely not. The jobs in the clean tech sector pay much better than any of the low paying jobs that um, that often have been offered. And, you know, of course, there are some restriction, but we also have a system like cap and trade that says, look, you can either reduce your greenhouse gas emissions or you provide money that's going to help offset the impacts to those communities that are negatively impacted uh, environmentally. And so there are opportunities to work with the business community. You know, I authored a bill that was signed by the governor that uh, puts higher fees on companies that have oil and gas leaks. We invited the industry to be at the table and have conversations. So when businesses are responsible and willing to work with us, we can do that. Uh, We want to support California businesses. But when they're doing the right thing and too often the argument from some Republicans and some business leaders is we know it's the right thing to do, but it just costs too much money. Well, we're saying, what's the cost to not act? And so we're happy to have those conversations. We want to support California business, but we cannot put our head in the sand and say that climate change is not real or because it costs too much to address it. We're not going to do
6: anything.
1: Michael Bloomberg and others, uh, Hank Paulson, did a whole project on the cost of inaction. There's often the cost. We can't do something because it'll cost too much. Or there's a cost of doing nothing. We're going to go to our lightning round, a series of true or false questions for our guest today, Uh, beginning with uh, Duff Suntime. True or false, gay marriage is settled law in the United States. True. Christine Pelosi, Hillary Clinton's campaign showed hubris and entitlement. True. Tony Strickland, Joe Biden would have beaten Donald Trump in a landslide. True. (laughs) Uh, Tony Thurman, Ku Klux Klan support for Donald Trump is deeply troubling. True. Duff sometime, the Electoral College should be reformed so electoral votes are aligned with popular votes in each state. Within each state, because
0: so I'm not for the popular vote, but I'm for getting rid of the Electoral College and going. So California
8: like a congressional district type system that some other states, yes,
2: yes. only if you out. had universal nonpartisan redistricting commissions.
0: I'm for those two and supported <laughs> yes. that in California and supported nationwide. Sorry. And, yeah, that's no, that's
2: fine. <laughs> it's
1: uh, actually we found some areas of agreement there in terms of uh, reforming uh, and protecting the democracy. Uh, Christine Pelosi, the next two years will be your mother's last as leader of the Democratic uh, House Democrats.
2: False.
8: Uh, Tony Strickland, you that would have been a story if you said otherwise.
1: <laughs> that would have been a front page story. I uh, got to try. Uh, Tony Strickland, you watch MSNBC at least once a week. Absolutely true. Uh, Christine Pelosi, you watch Fox News at least once a week. True. Duff Sundheim, burning fossil fuels contributes to rising seas and temperatures. True. Uh, Tony Strickland, carbon pollution contributes to climate change. True. Duff Sondheim, you have slept with a Democrat.
0: Wow. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She she is. um, Wow. (laughs) Just say truth. She does not. (laughs) <laughs> indicate her, she's an independent voter.
1: Fair background here. You yeah. worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who used to often talk about how he, he did that. Um,
0: you're you're uh, trying to get me in trouble here. Nah, uh,
1: wow. Now a that fair, would have been a story. And, she, um. and,
0: she, and, she, and she's sitting in the second row. So.
2: Uh. <laughs> Hi, honey.
1: Christine Pelosi, you've slept with a Republican. False. <laughs> So you're saying there's a chance.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm
8: kidding, I'm kidding. That's not a story.
2: In my Uh, next life, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Happily married.
1: Tony Thurman, California's drift toward one-party rule is unhealthy for its democracy.
5: False. In the current sense.
1: (laughs) Um, Duff Suntime, Donald Trump is the only elected leader, world leader, who publicly doubts that human activity is changing the climate.
0: Recent comments, not clear. I think he's showing that he's open to new ideas in that area.
2: He's the only one who's tweeted it. Put it that That's, way. That's yeah, the only one
1: who's, yeah. Um, uh, Tony Strickland, Republicans are afraid to stand up to stand up to Trump for fear of reprisals. False. Tony Thurmond, uh, California's Climate action has raised energy prices and hurt low income people.
5: Absolutely false.
1: Duff Suntime are more Republican men in the gay closet or the climate closet.
5: (laughs) (laughs) You get good ones. (laughs) He's getting all the
0: good questions. (laughs) Well, I think that the gay issue is pretty much settled. So I would say by default, more in the climate. Okay.
1: Christine Pelosi, federal earmarks were useful lubricants for getting deals done in Congress, and they should be revived. False. Tony Thurman, Democratic politicians should spend less time sipping Chardonnay on verandas with well-heeled donors and more time drinking beer in dive bars.
5: Well, I don't drink Chardonnay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to say false.
1: Uh, This is uh, mention a statement and want to ask from each of our guests, uh, two or three words, first words that pop into your mind. Uh, This is Donald Trump's statement. So I'm going to ask each of our guests. I'll mention a Donald Trump statement and get their immediate response. The first two or three words that come to their mind. Christine Pelosi, Donald Trump banning lobbyists from his cabinet. A false promise. Uh, Duff Sundheim uh, breaking with 65 years of bipartisan uh, tradition in appointing a military officer, James Mattis, as Secretary of Defense. Great move, historic move. Even though it will require a changing federal law because we want to have there's a tradition of civilian control of the military in this country. Uh, Tony Strickland, Donald Trump's statement to Billy Bush that he sexually assaults women. False. Tony Thurman, uh, Donald Trump's plan to have Muslims register.
5: It's shameful behavior that doesn't belong in our country.
1: That's the end of our lightning round. Let's give them a, a round of applause for. We're <laughs> getting through that. Um, so let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Sure.
8: Um, thanks. So to Mr. Um, Sondheim, you gave a really eloquent discussion uh, on on climate and the nuances between Republicans and Democrats in California. And Mr. Dalton asked you as poignantly as he could the disconnect that I just don't understand. So try and explain it simply since this is all about communication. Why can't mainstream Republicans from Mitch McConnell on down just accept climate change, say exactly what you said. We have a different view of how to get to it, whether it be regulation, innovation, all the things I might add that California has done and I say this is somebody who worked in Washington in the 80s when acid rain was being debated, tell me why they are so frightened to even say it.
1: That's on time.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. I I can't answer that question um, other than that's a discussion that Tony and I have, and I think that we're making progress in that. And I think that, again, you're seeing it even in the uh, Trump administration, where they started out with, you know, a very flat statement and they're being much more nuanced. So the thing about this administration, again, if you have the evidence, I think you're going to be able to make your case. And that's what we're
1: going to continue to try to do. Christine Pelosi, uh, some people say that the answer to that question is partly money, uh, fossil fuel funding. Uh, California Democrats recently said they're not gonna take money from fossil fuel companies. Is that gonna hurt?
2: It's going to help. I think it's a terrific idea. I wish that our legislators um, individually wouldn't take that money either, because I think the worry um, is not that we're sliding into one-party rule in California. I think what you're going to see in the legislature, are you are going to have progressive Democrats versus the so-called mod squads right. um, who are getting money from big business? That's what hurt us on some of our climate efforts earlier this year. So, yes, it's the money. If you're the Koch brothers and you have shale oil investments that are worth billions and billions of dollars, then given even $1 billion, and campaign contributions to protect that is a very successful return on investment. And that's why you have to clean up polluted politics by cleaning up the the ability for unlimited money to be spent and showered on these legislators. By the and way, I, and I, I think I think that's a good answer
0: to the question that you asked. I mean, there are people that are tied, whether it's coal or oil, and they're tied to those industries. And so it's a matter of self-interest.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
7: Oh, uh, this question is for Tony Strickland, mainly because I disagreed with you the most on stage. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, like many Californians in this room, I was shocked when Trump won. And how do we, as Californians, eliminate the enclaves in American society? How do we shake the coastal elite reputation and connect with the rest of the nation?
8: I you well, you know, um, I, I think it's important um, to connect with we have a diverse country. Look, I was Mitt Romney's California chair, both in eight and twelve. Spent a lot of time with Governor Romney traveling this country. <laughs> people in Texas are far different. They have different life experiences than people in California, than people in Alabama, than people in New York. The greatness of this country is we are diverse. Um, and but you have to understand that you have to have a candidate that can fit anywhere else. And let me talk to you uh, what I mean. In my lifetime, I think the two best elected presidents uh, that fit that mold are Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan. Let me give you an example. You could go from Wall Street to Hollywood, to the South, to the Midwest Union steel town, and Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan would fit in wherever you went. And I don't think that that was the case of the two candidates that we had. But I will say in the swing states in that Rust Belt, uh, Donald Trump was able to connect. And unlike you, I thought Donald Trump had a shot. I thought it was an inside straight, but I always thought he had a shot at winning the presidential race. And I knew it came down to flipping a Democratic state, but also making sure that Obama won Florida, Virginia and Ohio. Both times we had to win. I knew Virginia was gone when we talked about the presidential race. But Florida and Ohio, I felt very confident that Donald Trump was going to win those two states. I was saying, what what other state can he do? And and campaigning wise, um, Joe Biden would have done far better in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, obviously. And Hillary Clinton just did not connect to to those voters in those states.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
4: Hi, um, this question is Mr. Th- is for Mr. Thurmond. Um, so you mentioned that right now in construction job training that there's solar panel installation trainings as well, um, and I was just wondering like since um as miss pelosi said that people vote um by their like personal pocketbook and climate change is also an undeniable threat and so it seems like one of the best solutions is to retrain workers who are currently in the fossil fuel industry to work in clean tech and my question for you is what are the biggest roadblocks right now to having um like more widespread and robust retraining programs and what can Um, like lay people like activists do to like empower their local representatives to get that kind of um, funding.
1: Thank you. There was the only time climate came up in the debates was a guy who works at a coal plant. Mm -hmm.
5: You know, going back to the gridlock in Congress, the federal government has reduced the amount of money that we get for our workforce development programs. And those are exactly the dollars that we use to train and retrain individuals. Um, We've got a great community college system um, that really can help to prepare people for, you know, um, sectors that are really seeing growth. Um, You know, clean tech is seeing growth, um, technology. We've got to start working with our students while they're in school to make sure that they get access to all the computer science training that they can. We're going to see maybe a million jobs in coding that could go unfilled in California because we're not preparing our students to be that workforce of tomorrow. Uh, These things require dollars uh, to provide that training and quite frankly, We've got to also consider that there are roadblocks in the way of the of the candidates who often can't get to the training, um, whether or not they've been formally incarcerated and there aren't reentry programs to help them, um, whether or not they've struggled in school and they, they need more support to be prepared to take those jobs. These are the kinds of things that we're working on in the legislature. We've, we've put more money into our community colleges, into our apprenticeship training programs so that when we have um, a, a transportation package, that uh, that money can go to creating good paying jobs for individuals who can work in them and have the training. And we're committed to doing more of that here in
3: California. Greg Dalton has been discussing the year in political and climate disruption with Tony Thurmond, Democratic member of the California State Assembly from Richmond, Tony Strickland, California chair of the pro-Trump super PAC, the Committee for American Sovereignty, Duff Sundheim, former chair of the California Republican Party, and Christine Pelosi political strategist, and Democratic Party superdelegate. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our free podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Devin Strolovich, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.